0: the Thoughts From a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. I look forward to chatting books. Today, I am interviewing Alka Joshi about The Secret Keeper of Jodhpur. Born in Jodhpur, India, Alka has lived in the United States since the age of nine. She has a BA from Stanford University and an MFA from California College of the Arts. She ran her own advertising and PR agency for 30 years. Currently, she is working on the third book of the trilogy and a screen adaptation of The Henna Artist. Elka is my first repeat guest on the podcast, which was so much fun, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes. Welcome, Alka. How are you today?
1: Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much.
0: I am so glad you are here because you are my first repeat author, and I think that is so fitting because I absolutely loved our last conversation, and I've had such wonderful feedback about it. And in addition to that, I run an online book club called As the Page Turns, and once a year, we have an author come in and speak to our annual past members, and you did that for us in October, and you were a huge hit there too.
1: Oh, that is so lovely to hear. I do get your newsletter, so I know that you are very active as the page turns is a very active format. It
0: is. And we just love it. And so I am now contemplating October and I'm thinking, okay, I've got to get somebody really good because Elko was so good last year. (laughs) So the pressure is on. Well, you are now with book two, getting ready to head out into the world. So why don't we start out by talking a little bit about it? Tell me a little bit about The Secret Keeper of Jaipur.
1: Okay. You know, it's so funny. When we sent the henna artist off to the publishers, off to the printers, I thought, you know, uh, this Malik character who has grown so large in the 10 years that it took me to conceive and to get the uh, henna artist into the hands of readers, this character is at my temples constantly telling me uh, that he needs to tell his story. And I just thought, You know, this is remarkable. Everybody told me that when they become an author, their characters speak to them. And somehow I had a hard time sort of believing that. But you know what? It is absolutely true, Cindy. They do talk to you. And so Malik kept talking to me and saying, I've got a story to tell, and I really need you to tell it. And it turned out that in this retelling, Malik is 20 years old. And so we have advanced uh, from the first book, we have advanced the story 12 years. Uh, Malik is now 20. He is no longer a scruffy child of eight years old, a street child. He is now a posh and polished young man who has had the advantage of a boarding school education up in Shimla and uh, courtesy of Samir Singh. And so... He is uh, at a little bit of a loose end, and Lakshmi doesn't quite know how to help him. But she knows that he has become involved with a nomadic tribal woman up in the Himalayas. And she wants to make sure that she puts him in a position where he has a career, he has something he can always fall back upon, And frankly, she doesn't quite agree with his relationship choice because Nimmi, this tribal woman, is illiterate, as are most of the nomads who travel along the Himalayas. So, you know, Lakshmi, in all of her wisdom, says, you know what, Malik, I have arranged an apprenticeship for you down at the Japur Palace. So that's where you're going to go. You're going to learn about the construction trade from your uncle, Manu. Uh, Manu and Kanta are the ones who had adopted little baby Nikki from the first book, and now Nikki is 12 years old. And uh, so, you know, you're going to go down there, Malik, and you're going to learn about the construction trade, and when you come back, you will have something very solid under your belt. So Malik goes down there, and in doing so, he learns about some interesting things that are going on and maybe some nefarious activities that he needs to tell Lakshmi about uh, that involved the Maharani's and they involve the Sings, the same characters from the henna artist. Meanwhile, uh, Lakshmi is in Shimla and uh, she is trying to placate Nimmi, who is upset with her, of course, for sending Malik away. Uh, she's trying to placate her by... Uh, having her involved in the healing garden. And Nimi knows so much about the herbal remedies up in the Himalayas that it's actually wonderful for Lakshmi to be able to work with her so that they can expand the healing garden to more of the indigenous plants of the upper Himalayas. So um, that's kind of what's going on in book two. And I think what was interesting for me to explore, Cindy, is this whole idea of People who feel as if they don't quite belong to one group of people, and so they're trying to find home in uh, whatever way they can. Malik is somebody who is a street child. He didn't really know his father, and in this book, we will find out who actually raised him within the walls of the Pink City and why he actually needed to leave at the time that he left with Lakshmi to go up to Shimla. So we're going to find out a lot of backstory about him and the fact that he never really had a family of his own. He doesn't have kin whom he can count on. Lakshmi is the closest that he has to a family. And then also Nimmi is a tribal woman whose husband died in one of the very treacherous treks along the Himalayas that the nomadic tribes make every year. They still do to this day. They take their sheeps and their goats and their water buffaloes up and down the mountains seasonally. And then once they are down uh, in the areas where all the cities are, in the lower Himalayas, that's where they sell their wool from the sheeps and the goats and the milk from the water buffaloes and so on. So once she lost her husband, she wanted to live in town because she has two very small kids. And she didn't want to be relegated to being the wife of yet another one of the herders whom she might lose in one of those other treks. So she begged her father-in-law to please live in town in Shimla. And that is what she is doing by herself. She is making a living on her own, a very precarious one, but she is making a living. So she doesn't belong to anyone either. And the fact that she and Malik have found themselves, this is very interesting to me. Because I think that sometimes when we don't belong to any particular tribe, we seek out other people who also don't belong to a particular tribe. I have seen this in my, I guess, my actual real life over and over again. And I think it's something that I did in my real life. So um, I, I find this whole kind of relationship building and home seeking very interesting. And that's what I wanted to explore in this novel. Well,
0: I think it makes sense because if you're seeking your home and feel like you don't really have a place that you belong, and then you find someone else who is going through similar things, then, you know, you have that in common before you even start.
1: Yes, absolutely. And in The Secret Keeper of Japur, Malik always stands apart. He holds himself apart a little bit from everyone else. He is more of an observer than a participant because that is the way that he has found he can try to blend in to whatever environment he's in. And he can blend in so far, but not too far. He has never quite accepted 100%. So he knows what the limitations are. And it's interesting to me to see where he goes in every situation, how far he transgresses before he says, okay, there's my limit. I cannot cross this line.
0: I agree. I liked seeing how he navigated everything. He also really resonated with your readers, right?
1: Yes. Oh, my gosh. You know, I could not tell you how many readers wrote to me and said, I love the henna artist and I fell in love with Malik. I want to know more about Malik. Where did he come from? Why does he live in the pink city? Who takes care of him? And I thought it was so interesting because I also fell in love with little Malik. And I wanted to know some of these things. Now, I already did know about some of this backstory, but it had to get cut out of the original novel in order to make the henna artist a lot tighter. So in The Secret Keeper of Jampur, I got a chance to put all of that information back in, all of the backstory about Malik. And uh, it was delightful to me that these readers wanted to know more about him. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to write this book for them. I'm writing this book for all those readers who fell in love with Malik but also I'm writing this book for my husband without whose encouragement I would never have started to write fiction
0: I loved that when I saw the acknowledgment I was like oh
1: <laughs> but I think it's so interesting how there are certain characters
0: that just resonate like that and it isn't with just one person it's you know almost universal that like you're saying you you had already written his backstory you already knew a lot about him you were contemplating writing his story. And then you're hearing from people right and left, like that's what we want to hear about.
1: Yes, exactly. You know, it's interesting to me how much I have learned just writing the first novel. Okay. So what happened in the first novel, Cindy, is that I had originally, when I sent it off to my agent, Emma Sweeney, I had had alternating chapters of Lakshmi and Radha, her sister. And in these first person accounts, my agent said, look, when you have two characters and you are writing their first-person accounts, you have to make each of them as compelling as the other. If you cannot make that happen, then you need to get rid of one of the characters' first-person voices. And I nearly choked because I thought, (laughs) no, I can't get rid of all of those pages. I wrote 140 pages that I would have to get rid of. And I tried like mad to try to make each character as compelling as the other. But at the end, Emma said, no, Lakshmi is still far more compelling. You need to make the entire story about Lakshmi. So I had to learn how to do that. But guess what? Now with book number two, The Secret Keeper of Jampur, I was able to put in three voices that are all very compelling. And I think I just learned over time and over the course of the 10 years and 30 drafts that it took me to write the henna artist, how to make that happen. So in The Secret Keeper, we have three voices. We have Malik's voice to begin with. Then we have Nimmi, his beloved, because she is also a very strong woman and she is a formidable competitor (laughs) to uh, Lakshmi. She is formidable. And so I wanted her to have a voice. And then of course, Lakshmi is a very strong person in and of herself. So she has a voice. So I've got three different voices in book number two, and I'm delighted to be able to learn enough from the first book to uh, expand my repertoire of fiction in order to be able to create three different, very uh, compelling voices.
0: I do think that is great advice. Where I see that play out a lot is not necessarily, I mean, I guess it still is people's points of view, but I see it a lot in historical fiction when it's two time periods. So they'll be like, you know, 1950 and 2010. And a lot of times stories are really balanced, but there are a number of them that aren't. And so all I want to do is get back to whichever timeline is the more compelling. So I think that taking that advice, not having it where it's not balanced, and instead you always wanted to get back to Lakshmi's story and not caring as much about the other woman's story is great advice, because I do think that frustrates people. And then you miss details because you're kind of skimming through the sections you don't <laughs> find as interesting, you know?
1: Yes. No, absolutely true. You know, and I think this is where really good editors and really good uh, literary agents come in handy. I think that I have been so lucky, Cindy, in everything. uh, Every person who has touched this book has made this book better. And so my literary agents give me all kinds of great advice. And so do my editors. You know, when, when they say to me, this is not working, this character is not compelling enough, you need to make this level of tension a lot higher in this scene, I listen to them. And they always give you great advice because they're looking at it from a very dispassionate point of view, right? They're not writing it, so they're not wedded to the words. They are wedded to how compelling the story is. And I think that it behooves almost every writer to listen To what their editors are telling them, and uh, you know, follow that advice and see how much of it you can incorporate into your work.
0: I agree. I was just going to make that point where you're writing the book, so it's very personal to you, and you're living it day in, day out. You're creating all of this. You can't be neutral about it because you've been living it. So to have someone else who's just looking at it for the first time give you advice, and you don't always have to take the advice, but at least it's it's helpful. listen to what they have to say and incorporate what you feel like will work for your story.
1: That's just it. And I think you do learn over time as a writer to figure out which parts of that critique are things that you firmly believe will help make your story better and which parts of that critique you can let go of because they are not in line with the intention that you have for your novel. One thing that I always ask myself as I'm writing is, What is my intention for Malik? What is it that I want the reader to take away from him? What is my intention for Lakshmi? How do I want the reader to perceive Lakshmi? How do I want her transformation to play out in this story? Uh, And then, of course, with Nimmi, the same thing. You know, how is Nimmi going to change and transform throughout this novel? And are those critiques helping me get to those uh, points of intention?
0: True. And Alka, you don't really want to give up something that you feel strongly about (laughs) with your intention and the way you're looking at the book and you feel like, okay, this part of the story is really important to me. I'm not willing to let that go because then you kind of hold on to that resentment or the frustration the whole time and think, well, if I had done it differently, things might go differently.
1: Exactly. That is exactly true. Yeah. I think it's so, you know, it's such a fine balance to be both a writer and a reader because I think that when you are uh, when you are writing, you also have to put yourself in the position of a reader. So sometimes when I'm looking at my work and I'm reading it, I am trying to read it as if you or somebody else, another reader might be looking at it for the first time. It's hard to do, but uh, I think we have to place ourselves in both those positions as a writer and a reader. <laughs>
0: I think that's a good way to look at it. Well, as I was reading, I was so curious. Did the Royal Jewel Theater exist or does it still exist? Did that collapse happen or was that something that you made up for purposes of your story?
1: Oh, I love this question. Thank you so much. There is a famous movie house in Jaipur called the Rajminder, and it has been around forever. And it's a huge, huge, huge cinema, state of the art. It was gorgeous. Uh, I don't know if it's still open, but that is my model for what is happening here. The only difference is that I have made the Royal Jewel Cinema uh, in The Secret Keeper of Japur novel. I have made it a lot more state-of-the-art than the Rajminder was. But at the time that the Rajminder Cinema House was first built, it was the only cinema house for miles around, and people would make it a trip, you know, to come in from Uh, neighboring cities and neighboring towns, people would really make it a day trip to come out and just watch a movie. It was a really big deal. So it is fashioned after a real cinema house that existed for 50, 60 years and was the biggest cinema house of all time in that area.
0: But tragedy did not befall the real one.
1: No, no. Tragedy did not befall the real one. The tragedy part came actually from my father. You know, my father has been so instrumental in helping me with these stories, which I'm calling the Japur Trilogy, because uh, he was a uh, civil engineer in the 1950s and 60s in India at the time that a lot of these stories are taking place. And he was telling me about what happens when one of those buildings... I had a problem with it, or if there was a collapse, or if there was any kind of fault in the building of it, and who took responsibility, who didn't take responsibility, you know, what actually happened, and how involved the Maharajas and maharani's were in uh, a lot of those building projects. So dad, you know, uh, once he was telling me these stories, I thought, oh, okay, you know what, I think that's what's going to happen <laughs> once uh, Malik is there. And then of course, Along with that, I wanted to explore what's happening along the Himalayas in the 60s. There's a lot of drug running, gun running, and gold running happening through the mountains, right? Because there's not a lot of oversight along the mountains from the police and from the Indian government. So uh, there's a lot of illegal activity that happens. And the nomadic tribes, whether they want to or not, sometimes get involved in that. So I wanted to get them involved uh, I wanted to show what was happening with the gold running across that area. In India, the obsession with gold is enormous. I don't quite understand it. You know, every dowry has to have a huge gold component with it, every wedding dowry. And in India, so little of the gold is actually mined in India that it has to be brought in from the outside. Now, when you bring in gold from the outside, Uh, what happens oftentimes is that the government doesn't know about it. It's being brought in illegally or it's going to be taxed and nobody wants to pay the tax. So half of it is brought in legally and half of it is brought in illegally. So I wanted to bring that component into this story as well. And that was really fun for me to try to marry that with what's happening with both Nimi and Lakshmi in Shimla and also then Malik in Jampur.
0: You pack a lot of information into a book and you do it so seamlessly. I mean, the stories all go together so well, but I just thought I learned so much. And then at the end, I loved all of the portions of information that you included at the end of the book, kind of about the gold and about the Himalayan mountains and the nomads and the recipes. All of that was a great addition.
1: Oh, Cindy, I found the world of the nomads so fascinating. I might even write a book just about them. I mean, their culture is so organic in a way. You know, they live off the land. They are constantly moving from one place to another. They camp everywhere. And now that India is far more, I would say, modernized than it was in the 1960s, now a lot of the trails that they used to take have been turned into highways. And along with that, there are now trucks and cars that are constantly traveling those same routes that they would travel with their animals. And so, you know, their vision of how their life was lived for centuries is being compromised. And uh, I just found their whole lifestyle very compelling, very almost a a template for I think, how we should probably all live our lives. That we live somehow a lifestyle that doesn't impact animals and the natural surroundings around us. I found them so compelling. I did so much research on the nomadic tribes. And I thought, you know, I I have to somehow include them in this novel, especially if we're talking about the Himalayas. I thought it was a very interesting
0: topic and it was one I knew nothing about. And I didn't know much about the gold, but I read Sanjana Sathian's Gold Diggers a couple of months ago, and she focuses a little bit on gold and the Indians' interest in gold. And that was just, again, something I hadn't really been aware of.
1: Yeah. You know, I've been reading about her book. I have not read her book, but I was reading about it. Yes, the Indians are super obsessed with gold. I mean, I remember from way back when, when my mother had all of this gold and my father, Took a bunch of it and gave it to the Indian government because the Indian government was saying to its people, Hey, we've got a war coming up with China. This is in the 1960s. We are going to go to war with China. We do not have enough money for munitions, but if you give us your gold, we will give you a promised chit, you know, an IOU, and uh, we will use your gold to buy munitions. And that's exactly what the Indian government did. Now, my mother. Without my, uh, you know, without her knowledge, my father had given her gold away. So my mother never forgave my father for having done something like that. And you can bet that the whole time I was growing up, this argument would come up again and again.
0: (laughs) Over and over. Did she ever get her gold back?
1: You know, she got a portion of her gold back. She never got back the actual 24 karat gold because that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about the gold in its purest form. Right. Uh, not the 14 karat, not the 10 karat, not the 18 karat that is usually sold in the West, but more of the 22 and the 24 karat gold, uh, so that it can be melted down, so that it can be used for all kinds of other things. And oftentimes, part of what the dowry includes are these large pieces of gold, you know, like a like a big choker around your neck or large bracelets. And really, what it is is it's just a way of fashioning gold into something that a woman can wear, but that could easily be melted down, you know, in emergencies. And that was supposed to be my mother's emergency fund. You know, that gold dowry was her fund. That was supposed to be her retirement fund, her, uh, you know, I can't get along in life fund, uh, her, uh, you know, my husband has died and I can't take care of my children fund. And uh, so that is why she was so upset with my father and never, never, ever forgive him.
0: <laughs> well, and he did it without her permission. I mean, I'm not at all criticizing yeah. your father, but I can just yeah. understand as a woman where you own something and, you know, someone goes and takes it and does something with it without even asking that it would be frustrating.
1: Yes, exactly. And, you know, my father, of course, was just doing what he thought was the right thing to do because he's a Hindu national. And he's like, you know, I'm all for India, whatever India needs, I will, you know, help them. I I think he was doing what he thought was best, and my mother was wanting to save the gold for what she thought would be best for her family.
0: That kind of age old conflict. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned earlier the trilogy, and I know we spoke a little bit about it last year, but you are working on the third book in this kind of series, I guess, if that's what you want to call it.
1: Yes, exactly. So it's a trilogy, and right now, what I'm working on, and once again, Parts of book number three were things I had already written for the henna artist, the first book. And so all I had to do was look at that material again and and realize that there is this whole other chapter that I can write about, and this will be about Radha. So uh, we've got the first story primarily about Lakshmi, the second story primarily about Malik, and the third story will be about Radha, the third main character who is Lakshmi's sister. She's only 13 years old in The Henna Artist, but now in book number three, she's going to be 30, the same age that Lakshmi was in The Henna Artist. And at the age of 30, we find Radha in Paris. She is married to a Parisian whom she met as he was trekking through the Himalayas and she was in boarding school. And of course, in typical Radha fashion, she has eloped with him and doesn't even tell her family where she went. But, you know, the marriage turned out to be a good one. And she has two little children. They live in Paris in the 7th arrondissement. And Rada got a chemistry degree at the Sorbonne because she was always so good at mixing things like the henna paste and old paints from the man in the village. She got fascinated with the idea of mixing fragrances, which is a big industry in France, as you know. So she is uh, working for a master perfumer. She has worked her way up in a fragrance lab. She is one of three assistants to the master perfumer who is a woman by the way, because I always like to put women in positions of power. and while it wasn't customary to promote women as master perfumers in that time, there were a few women who really did break through the glass ceiling and became master perfumers. so Those are the ones I am modeling her boss after. And Radha is on the cusp of designing a signature scent for her master perfumer when there is a knock on her door. And on the other side of her apartment door is someone she has not seen in 18 years. It is going to be a shock to her to see this person for the first time in 18 years. And he he has a lot of questions for her. So that is the uh, crux of story number three. And in this one, I get to explore the fragrance industry. I love exploring all of these things that I know very little about. And I just came back from a trip to New York City where I was going to fragrance labs. I had a tour of, a, of one of the world's largest fragrance labs. And I talked to several master perfumers about what they do and how they develop fragrances and what their education is like. So I'm really excited about uh, book number three uh, now that I'm writing it. Like I get excited about whatever I'm learning in the books that I'm researching. And right now I'm really excited about all of this information about the fragrance industry.
0: That sounds absolutely fascinating. First, I love Paris. Second of all, I love perfume. (laughs) So I cannot wait for that one. It sounds like it will be every bit as good as the first two.
1: You know, I was so hoping that I could go to Paris. I had scheduled in my calendar, I was supposed to be in Paris right now as I'm speaking to you. I was supposed to go to Grasse, which is where the major perfume industry is. And then Paris is where all of the large uh, uh, labs are. So um, I was supposed to do that. And then I was going to go to the Bulgarian Rose Festival. It turns out that that is where a major rose harvest takes place, and then of course there's a lavender harvest in Provence. Can you imagine what it would be like to be there as you're harvesting all these fabulous flowers, and the scent is in the air everywhere? I just, I just think that would be just phenomenal. So, anyway, COVID has taken care of that, <laughs> so I'm not able to go travel as much as I would like to all of these places, but you know, hopefully maybe later this year, I'll be able to do some of that travel.
0: It looks like things are slowly beginning to open up over there and that Americans are starting to be welcomed again, especially vaccinated Americans. So hopefully by the end of the year, you will be able to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I just think, you know, now that I'm researching this new sort of field, the the fragrance field, I'm finding once again, you know, people are so generous with their time. People are so generous with having me interview them and sharing anecdotes and sharing stories about how they got to be where they are. I just find, you know, the generosity of people when you are an author and trying to get information that's going to authenticate your novel, the generosity of people is constantly a pleasant surprise to me.
0: I hear authors say that pretty regularly. And it is kind of amazing, but I think people like to talk about what they love and they love that you're interested in it and want to learn more.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then I always tell them they're going to go at the back of my acknowledgement section. So (laughs) that (laughs)
0: That helps helps too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, Alka, what have you read recently that you really liked?
1: So I am currently reading... Uh, a lovely book called No Land to Light On. It's actually not out yet, and I will be blurbing it because it's just lovely. And it's about Syrians in America, Syrian refugees. I like reading about all kinds of different countries and people from different countries. I like learning about their language. I like learning about their culture, their food, all of that kind of thing. is very interesting to me. It's almost like being able to travel without actually packing a suitcase. Another book that I finished reading that I loved was The Last Exiles by Anne Shin, and that's about North Korea and uh, the people who try to escape and how difficult it is, how they go about doing it, how they defect from that country because it is so difficult, and also how easy it is for a people led by a dictator to completely buy into what the dictator is telling them. So that was really interesting. And the last one is The Bombay Prince by Sujata Massey. I love Sujata's stories about 1920s Bombay and her detective, who is actually a woman. I love these stories. Uh, And so I got in touch with Sujata and I said, oh, my gosh, you know, we have to do something together. So to introduce the secret keeper of Jaipur and the Bombay Prince, We are going to do a live broadcast together on June 20th at Book Passage, and I'm really excited because I feel like, you know, as a debut author from last year, I feel as if I have met this whole community of authors who are so also generous and also uh, excited about teaming up with authors whose books they resonate with. So um super, super excited about these books.
0: I've read the first book in her series. I haven't read the other two yet, but I know at the bookstore we were always selling them and it was a super popular series.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like series, Cindy, because I feel like I get to know the characters over time and uh, over a lot of different situations and over generations. I I love series. I actually like them almost as much as I like to binge on TV series (laughs) on the streaming channels.
0: I love series too, because it's almost like you're revisiting an old friend every year when the new book comes out. Yeah. And I meant to ask you about your Instagram series that you've been doing called Reimagined. Do you want to talk a little bit about that quickly?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Almost every Wednesday, I try to, in the morning, have a guest whose work I admire. It could be an author. It could be somebody who is doing something in the Ayurvedic or uh, the yogic or some kind of self-care community, or maybe it is uh, somebody who is a filmmaker. Coming up, I'm going to be interviewing Zoe Noble, whom I read about in the New York Times, who has done an entire essay, photo essay, all around the world. She's actually of British origin, but she lives in Berlin. And she has done this photo essay about child-free women. And I love the fact that she's calling them child-free because there are many women like myself, like Lakshmi, around the world who choose to be childless. And it's not something that hampers our life or that makes us less of a woman or that doesn't allow us to relate to women who actually have children. I think it's a choice that women can make that I think all women should be allowed to make. If that is something they want to do, live a child-free existence, then I think they should be allowed to. So I'm excited about uh, interviewing Zoe. And just, you know, asking her, how did this come about? And how did you find all these child-free women? I like that terminology, child-free. I do think that is a
0: topic that is becoming much more prevalent and kind of brought into the mainstream and people saying, you know, it was not something that we couldn't do. It was something we chose not to do. And I think that's wonderful because everybody should be able to make their own decisions regarding whatever it is. So if you don't want to have children, then there shouldn't have to be constant conversations about it.
1: Exactly. 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 You know, I thought that when I wrote uh, Lakshmi's character as a child-free woman, I thought that I would get some pushback from especially the South Asian community or more, you know, of the more traditionally cultural uh, communities. But actually, the reverse has been true. So many women from those communities have reached out to me and said, thank you so much for helping me understand perhaps why my daughter chooses to be child-free and I need to stop pestering her. (laughs) Or maybe even uh, younger women who have said to me, you know, I'm not really sure I want to have children. And this gives me license to be able to give voice to my thoughts as well. So I, you know, one of the things that I think is so wonderful about being an author is that you get to talk about what you believe in. You get to talk about your ideas about life, but in a fictional form and in a sort of entertaining way so that people can absorb it. It's not as if I am putting out a treatise or a white paper (laughs) on what I believe in, but I am putting out things that I believe in for people to consider. I just want people to consider that there are other ways to live a life. And I think that you know, it goes a long ways towards helping some people open their eyes.
0: I think that's why fiction is so transformative. Because who wants to pick up a white paper on pretty much any, you know, any of these topics? I mean, some people do, but not many. But many more people are going to pick up your book and read it. And then like you said, understand or feel like their decision is okay, feel validated, whatever it is. So I think that's wonderful.
1: Excellent.
0: Well, Alka, thank you so much for joining me in the Thoughts from a Page podcast again today. It was just delightful to speak to you again.
1: Cindy, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that you do this program because I do think that, you know, people are hungry for information about authors, where they get their ideas, what kind of research they do, how they bring characters to life on a page. I just think that it's a fascinating topic, and especially because more and more women are doing it. And especially because more and more women are writing historical fiction, which is helping us bridge the gap and the many gaps (laughs) that there are in history, which was largely written by men before.
0: I feel like that speaking to the author and learning so much more about their books just breathes life into the book. And I always love the books initially but I feel like I just learn even more and it makes the book even more special to me. And I learn more about like why certain decisions were made, just all of it. I, I think it's just fascinating.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. I agree.
0: <laughs> well, thank you again.
1: Thanks so much, Cindy. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Alka's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront. And the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm
1: Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds.